0: Please turn with me to Hosea, chapter fourteen, as we will complete our study of the book of Hosea today. In Hosea fourteen, next week we'll begin looking at the book of Ephesians, in the New Testament. So I encourage you to begin reading ahead and studying ahead. It's a chat. It's a book that only has six chapters, and it's a book that is it's very good as far as uh, helping us understand. Uh, the Lord's work and salvation. We, when we first started meeting together to worship as a church, it's actually the first thing that we studied together. And so we'll be coming back to that book after all these years. And, um, and it's incredible to see how the Lord is still teaching us from something that we've read so many times. And so again, as we come to God's word, let's ask that He would open our hearts, that He would help us as we study from it. Let's, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us, that you would open our hearts, that we would see our sin, that we would be drawn close to you. Pray that you would open our minds, that we would know you more and more as you have called us to know you. We pray, Lord, that you would change us that we would be conformed no longer to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds and we pray this in your holy name amen so as we come to hosea 14 it made me think of this time of year at the school uh, as a school teacher this time of year represents uh, the end of the first the first grading period, which is the school year, is kind of divided up into nine-week grading periods, and the grading period usually comes, the end of the grading period usually comes with some upset students as well, because uh, their students are usually scrambling around to figure out how they can get their grades up, which sometimes involves them turning in things that they should have turned in weeks ago, but for some reason they just didn't do that, and now they're afraid to ask their teacher about it, and so by this point in the year, I've usually built a pretty good relationship with most of my students, and so they feel comfortable coming to me and telling me about the story, but they don't want to go and talk to their teacher about it. And so every time I'll give them the words to say to their teacher, I will actually say, and I'll go to them and say this, and that will help. I know what I'd like to hear them say, because I, as a teacher, would love for a student to come to me with those exact words. Teachers are usually pretty understanding, but students have spent so much time and energy and have been influenced so much from society to see their teachers as adversaries, so they couldn't imagine going to their teacher and asking for mercy. And so they oftentimes need the words to say. As we close out Hosea... We have a very similar situation playing out here in chapter 14 as the prophet provides the wayward people of Israel the words to use when going to the Lord in repentance. Israel had been in sin so long they probably couldn't remember what it was like to have a healthy relationship with God. And now they must seek His forgiveness and that can be hard. We know this on an interpersonal level. Anytime that you've had a rift with someone, if that if it goes on for a long periods of time, it gets harder and harder to speak to that person. Yet we worship a God who is slow to anger and who is quick to forgive because of the work of his son, Jesus. So Hosea guides his flock through this process into their healing. And this is not only instructive for us as we seek to have a healthy, relationship with god and seeking his forgiveness and restoration but even also as we seek to have that with one another as his people i think it's also helpful for us and so as we move through this last chapter we'll see this pathway and see it leading to our to our new life in christ so we'll be looking at it in three main ideas first guided to repentance second, healed by grace, and then lastly, challenged to a new life. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Hosea 14, looking at it in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea 14, starting at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and vows and, and the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew of Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot, his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we close this book, as we've studied through it, we've seen a very graphic depiction of Israel's idolatry, Israel's adultery even, against the Lord their God. This was demonstrated, of course, in Hosea the prophet in his personal life with his marriage to the prostitute Gomer. And over and over again, we've as we've worked through this book, we're given that same picture That same picture the Lord uses concerning their adultery, concerning Israel's own prostitution to other gods. Along with that, and rightly so, we had the promise of God's judgment on Israel. And we've seen quite a bit of that as we've moved through the book. This isn't an empty promise either, and I think that's important to understand. You know, kind of like a parent who sees their kids disobeying and then says, I'm going to count to three. And the child knows full well that they have three more seconds, at least, to continue disobeying. This is a promise that has a real historical fulfillment. As the nation of Assyria is gearing up to completely destroy the northern kingdom and will almost do the same to Judah in the south. But as we consider this alongside God's promises to have a people for himself for all eternity, we know that there has to be some mercy there, that God is not going to completely wipe out His people. There has to be some forgiveness associated with His judgment. And all of the Old Testament points to Jesus as the picture of God's act of mercy for His people. We saw that even as we read from First Samuel this morning in Sunday school. Jesus describes Himself even as the as the bronze serpent that is lifted up in the wilderness from Numbers 21, the cure for the wrath of God upon the sinful and rebellious people. When people ask me, and I get asked this a lot actually, why do you preach out of the Old Testament so much? Now they'll see this, the, what we're going through in a church, they'll hear that I'm doing Old Testament both in the worship service and in Sunday school, and I always answer the same way. Because I like to preach about Jesus. As we come to this last chapter, we see another clear picture of Jesus and our way to him. And this is not only a word for the unbeliever here today, but it's also for those of us in Christ. We never stop needing Jesus. We never stop needing to go to him for repentance, not to earn his favor. We have that infinitely, but to grow in our lives as his people. Article 7 of the Canons of Dort, which I encourage you to read through the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort are one of the three forms of unity historic Reformed churches have held to for years and years, centuries even. And that that, Article 7 of the Canons of Dort speaks of this kind of renewal in the life of a believer. And it says this, it says, by His Word and Spirit, God certainly, certainly and effectively renews them to repentance so that they have a heartfelt and godly sorrow for the sins they have committed. Seek and obtain through faith with a contrite heart forgiveness in the blood of the mediator. Experience again the grace of a reconciled God. Through, through faith, adore God's mercies and from then on more eagerly work eagerly work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. In this passage we see this kind of work with God giving us the words of repentance and leading us back so that we would follow him. That brings us to the first point, guided to repentance. Look with me again at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your Iniquity. This is a clear acknowledgement of Israel's sin. Here, Hosea is calling the flock back to the Lord because of their sin, which we have had laid out very much in detail throughout the rest of the book. And he's even giving them the words to say at this point, just like a student who is trying to turn in a paper that was due on the second week of school, and they're trying to turn it in in the middle of October. There's probably some fear associated with that. There's probably even a little bit of shame. Like, I can't believe I didn't do this and I've waited this long. In a way, these aren't bad feelings, really, as they represent a knowledge of the wrong that's been done, a kind of sorrow for it. It may not represent a permanent kind of sorrow, right? A permanent change as some students go on to do this every single grading period of the year. But it's just like us. In so many ways, we still struggle with many of the same sins year after year. Hosea realizes this struggle as he lived it with his wife. He saw the embodiment of this struggle every day. So he gives the people the words that they should take to the Lord. That looks, look at with me again verses 2 and 3. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. So the first words that he instructs them to use are take away all iniquity. And think about those words. Where might Hosea have learned to pray this way? Take away all iniquity. we read this morning from Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin. This was the prayer of David after his sin with Bathsheba that we read from in Psalm 51. If anyone If anyone ever needed the words to say after a horrible sin, it was David. And it was the Holy Spirit, of course, that gave him those words to say. We have the same here with the prophet Hosea. Hosea was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. He needed these words of repentance even for his own life. And he uses similar words as David as he, too, was instructed by the Holy Spirit. Take away iniquity except what is good. Well, what what could possibly be good? Well, it tells us the sacrifices, the vows, the confession, that there is one Savior, that it's not Assyria, that it's not horses, that it's not any kind of idol that we make with our own hands. None of these things can save us. It is the Lord alone. And there's this acclamation even that that God and that in and that in the Lord the orphan finds mercy. Which, if this you remember, back in chapter one, with the names of Hosea's children, remember those strange names that the Lord instructed Hosea to name his children. One of those children, his daughter, was named No Mercy. And so, what they're saying is, is in God alone, does the orphan find mercy? And so as we have these words as Hosea gives these words for the people to say in many ways it's just like when the Lord Jesus himself gave us the Lord's prayer there's nothing wrong with repeating those exact words the believers should know those words the Lord's prayer yet seeing them as a formula for the for the life of a believer is very helpful repentance is Not just asking to remove sin, but also an acknowledgement of past sin. It's also an acknowledgement to move on past those sins. A promise that you're going to move on. You're going to not sin any longer. Take away our sin, yes. But here is how I'm going to move past those sins. I'm not going to rely on things any, I'm not going to rely on these things. Any longer. Instead, I'm going to rely on you. Israel had long been seeking foreign rulers, had been seeking military power as their hope, and here Hosea instructs them to cast those idols down. I think for us today, we must also pray to the Lord that He would help us to recognize our sin, which is hard because We're usually only really good at seeing the sins of others. We're not all that good at seeing our own sin. This prayer is one that God answers every single time because He wants nothing more than for His people to live free from those sins and to live as He commands us to live. The prayer, God, show me my sin so that I may turn from it, is a prayer that gets results, guaranteed. Though it's a prayer that will sometimes yield difficult answers. Yet the rewards are always worth it. And we see that as we move forward in the text. Bringing us to the next point. Healed by grace. Look with me again at verses 4 through 6. This is the Lord responding to those words that Hosea gave the people to say. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will... Be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and His fragrance like Lebanon. I will heal them. I will love them freely. It's the picture of the grace of God in the lives of His people. They don't deserve this healing at all. They do not deserve His love. Yet He gives it to them anyway. And grace, by definition, is the addition of something that brings blessing to the people. And that's something being completely undeserved. And what is it that that healing and that blessing is, blessing is going to bring the people of God? Well, we read, he says, He shall blossom. He shall take root. He shall spread out. Verse 7, They shall return and dwell in my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain they shall blossom like the vine these are things that the grace of god is going to cause the people of god to do these are things that are also completely undeserved it's not as if them doing these things triggers some sort of event in god and he is compelled to do good things for them there's nothing in us that compels god to do anything he is free to do as he pleases And so because we do not deserve these good things, because He's doing them for us in an unmerited kind of way, we call this the grace of God. He gives them anyway. This is the unmerited favor of God in the lives of His people. Mercy, we oftentimes use those two words together. Mercy is withholding punishment, which is what happens here also. And grace is giving something that is undeserved. Adding to those people in his mercy, God could have simply decided that erasing the sin debt of Israel was enough, right? He could have said, I will have mercy on you and your current sin debt is at zero. And then been done with them at that point and shown his mercy. But he went a step further in his grace. He caused them to flourish. He made them whole again. He healed them. When Jesus taught about forgiveness, He always talked about both sides of this coin as well. You know the story of the prodigal son. Of course, this is a story that we've all known and heard so many times. That when the son decided, you know what, I I would have it better if I was home and, and one of my father's servants. And he came home, not only was he forgiven of his sins, but he was restored to a place of honor. In fact, it was the older brother who was unable to recognize the restoration that his brother had undergone, and who was truly the lost son at the end of the story. I say this, brothers and sisters in Christ, I say this to remind all of us that these principles not only apply to how we view our relationship with God, which is obviously very important, but they also apply to how we treat one another. That there is forgiveness when it comes to the relationships that believers have with one another, but there also must be restoration. I'll forgive, but I'll never forget is another way of saying I'll always hold a grudge. That grudge represents a, that, that grudge represents a lack of forgiveness ultimately. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be consequences for sin. We're not saying that. Israel obviously is going to experience that as well. They're going to be cast into exile for their sin. Yet they would have forgiveness and restoration. And notice too, that God's anger is not left unsatisfied. Again, it's not as if God's anger is just kind of cut off and He's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to be done. With that, because God is perfectly angry, meaning that His anger is always satisfied. Verse four, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. It doesn't say that His anger's gone away. It's just turned away from them. And it's got another focus. The Bible makes clear on who That new focus of the Lord's anger would be for the wrath of the sins of His people, and it would be His only Son, Jesus, for whom the Father's anger would turn upon. Jesus took the wrath that was due us, brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we may not only be forgiven, but that we might be restored to full in Him. And understand this also, the sins that others have committed against you. And this is, this is where the rubber really meets the road. Those sins that others have committed against you, Jesus also covered those sins as well. So for you to hold on to those sins, to hold them against your brother or your sister in Christ, is to say, Jesus' blood wasn't enough for these sins. And so I'm going to make you pay for them. And this is why when we come to the the table of the Lord every Sunday, that I instruct those who, that this is for those who believe. But if you have any unrepentance, if you're dealing with any unrepentant sin, not only to God, obviously in that relationship needs to be Sound, But if you have any unrepentance against a brother or sister, if you're holding on to any kind of sin or any unforgiveness that you shouldn't come to this table, which represents a complete and full restoration, because if you're holding on to something, you are acknowledging perhaps maybe Christ's death was not enough for these sins that I'm still hanging on to. While Hosea definitely has been a picture of restoration that occurs between God and his people, it is also a picture of the restoration that occurs between Hosea and his wife. And this is the picture of how we, brothers and sisters in Christ, should restore one another and walk in the newness of life that we have in Jesus. And that brings me to the last and final point challenged to a new life. Look with me at verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This verse is not only wrapping up chapter 14, but it's also the entire book of Hosea. The chapter divisions that are there are very very helpful to us, of course, but they are added much later in the game. So this last phrase is really Hosea closing up his entire book, that whoever is wise, whoever is discerning, it is those people that understand and know these things. Well, in Christ, we have been granted wisdom and discernment because of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives daily. So when we read and study a book like Hosea, it is now something that can change us. It is now something that can cause us to grow. It is now something that can challenge us as believers. It should no longer be a confusing old message written by a man that died thousands of years ago. Rather, it is something that is living and active for the life of a believer. It speaks to us today about our lives. And we are reminded here that the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Proverbs 10.29 tells us, The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction for evildoers. It's the picture of the wise man and the foolish man presented all throughout Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, whoever fears the Lord does these things lives by these commandments, follows His ways. And there is a right and holy fear that we have as we go before the Lord. Not thinking at all that we deserve His mercy or that we have somehow earned His favor with any good that we can scrape up in our own lives. It is Jesus alone who has earned His favor. Yet Jesus alone took His wrath. It's because of this that we can see the ways of the Lord and call them a blessing, a stronghold in our lives. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you see the ways of God as a stumbling block. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Call upon his name and be saved. Experience this grace and mercy that we've been talking about the grace and mercy of our God that is yours in Christ our Lord. And believers, I'll repeat the words of that Article 7 of the Canons of Dort to you as we experience this anew. Experience again the grace of a reconciled God. Through faith, adore God's mercies. And from then on, more and more eagerly, eagerly, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.